So that's pretty cool. I think that's probably worthy of like a, hey. Um, so those numbers went by pretty quickly, all right? So last year, those campuses, um, this week, so the way that the giving works, anything given throughout this week, so from today until Saturday, it all goes toward, toward missions. And so um, if you are a person uh, who typically gives and your giving comes out the second, third, or fourth week of the month, I would encourage you, hey, switch it to the first week of the month this, this time so that we get to give that away and we get to fuel missions over the course of the term. Um, if you haven't ever given, this is a great uh, time to start. We have up here on the screen several ways in which you can give. Um, and you can do that, again, by texting and setting that up. You can do that through the black boxes in the back, a variety of ways. And again, from today until Saturday, everything given, we get to give away. And I do just want to, to recap. You can hop off of that slide if you have questions about that. I do just want to recap because those numbers went by pretty quickly. So last year, $202,000 given across um, our three other campuses. And with that $202,000, about 50%, so about $101,000, went to supporting our partner, um, our partners across the world and locally. So it went to supporting local partners. Um, we last year got to give to Grace Clinic just down the street. Uh, we got to give to Leap In, um, as well as Voice of Hope, Voice of Hope, sorry, Grace Clinic that way. So we got to give financially to them. Uh, we also, um, as a church, we got to partner uh, with numerous church plants across all of our campuses. So church plants in Pittsburgh, Cincinnati, Bismarck, North Dakota, uh, West Lafayette, Indiana, and um, our church plant partner here at Marion, which is Salt and Light Church down in Columbus. We're also uh, getting backpacks for them that's out in the lobby uh, over the course of the month of June. Uh, we got to send out 84 people, as you saw in the video. We went to five different continents, eight major cities around the world. All right, so half of the 100 or 202,000. The other half went to paying for the people to go. And so as, um, in part, as members of a, Life, of a LifePoint campus, we will pay up to 50% of your mission trip cost. And so if you're a member and the church costs three, the um, mission trip costs $3,000, we will do everything we can to pay $1,500 of that. And so that's what that other half went to. So all that last year, amazing. This year, what we're praying for is $325,000 across all of our campuses, which is a big chunk of change. And half of that, again, will go to support our partners around the world and locally. And the other half, we pray, will be able to go toward paying for up to half of the, the trip costs for our members. And that is a big ask. It's a big goal. But again, we saw God, most importantly, those last two numbers, 4,500 people reached with the gospel and over 400 salvations. That's what we got to be a part of last year. And so unashamedly, I'm excited to see what God will do this year through our generosity. So that's it for this Sunday. You guys have a good, just kidding, just kidding. Um, so uh, textually, uh, what we're doing, we're going to be in, in the book of Ruth, okay? And so if you have your Bibles, um, we, last week we were in the book of Judges, and Ruth and Judges actually happens at the same time. Um, but in the book of Ruth, I think what we see are, are two, uh, at least, actually there, there's many more, but we're going we're gonna to talk actually about three really important insights as it relates to missions from the book of Ruth. So Ruth, as I said, takes place in the time of the Judges, and as I said last week, uh, at this time, Judges is, is a really... Um, uh, it's a dark time in Israel's history. God raised up these people he calls judges. They're really leaders over Israel. And what we see is that Israel time and time rebels, time and time um, they stray from God. Uh, as the book of Judges later says, there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Maybe sounds a little bit familiar to where we are. Everyone doing what's right in their own eyes. Truth was relative. 
And because truth was relative, sin was rampant. And so that's the time period in which we are in, once again, as we get into the story of Ruth. And I will say the big idea of this entire series, something we've said each and every week, is that we say yes because God is faithful. We say yes to the Great Commission because God is faithful, not because we are able. We say yes to giving because God is faithful to provide. We say yes to sharing the gospel because, because it's the greatest message in the world, as God is faithful to save when we share. So all of that being said, the book of Ruth, if you have your scriptures with you, I want to pray for us before we engage in the word, and then we will go from there. Father, I'm really um, grateful and excited for this morning. Um, God, I, I pray that you would work in us generous hearts. And God, as we open your word, would you open it to us? And you promise, God, you promise that your word is living and active. And so please, Lord, by the power of your spirit, make it living and active in our hearts and in our minds, that we would be a people transformed by your word, a people who are desperate to be obedient to your word and see you work through our obedience. We need you, we love you. Work in us and work through us this morning. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen. Now, uh, here's the, the setup here a little bit. Um, there's there's uh, somebody named Naomi. Uh, there's somebody named Elimelech. Um, they're married, and they have two sons. And so Naomi, Elimelech, and their two sons, there is a, there's a famine in Israel and Bethlehem. And so what they decide to do is they decide to leave Bethlehem and go to the land called Moab. Okay, They're going to leave Bethlehem, go to a land called Moab. And so when they get there, we're going to pick up in verse 3. This is what the text says. And it says, But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. And she was left with her two sons. These two took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah and the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about 10 years and both Malon and Chilion died so that the women were, women were left without her two sons and her husband. So again, they move. Things got really depressing. Um, they move because of a famine. Then, they, then uh, Elimelech dies. And then Ruth's, uh, excuse me, uh, Naomi's two sons they also die, and so now the situation is there's sort of the matriarch in Ruth, excuse me, in Naomi, and her two daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth. And so they are in a pretty uh, precarious situation because at this time, women would have been heavily dependent upon the uh, provision of the husband, uh, both for uh, finances and for security, and so they find themselves in a pretty desperate situation. Now, the situation begins to change when we get to verse 6. It says this. It says, when she arose with her daughters-in-law, to return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. And so we get the idea that, that Naomi, along with Ruth and Orpah, they're working in the fields of Moab trying to survive. Naomi hears, hey, the famine in Israel is over. And so she says, okay, we're going to go from Moab back to Bethlehem, back to Israel. Now, says this in verses 7 and 8. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. It's a bit fascinating. She's been with these two, and now she's going to go back to Bethlehem. She's going to go back to the, to the land of Judah, to Israel. And she says, no, I don't want you to come with me. And what's interesting is they protest. They said, no, 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 we want to come with you. 
And a second time, she says, no, do not come with me. She pleads with them. In verse 13, it says, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. She's like, no, for for your sake, for your own benefit, in verse 13, I want you to go back to your families. And Orpah says, okay, okay, I'm going to go. So she kisses Naomi, they weep, Orpah leaves. But Ruth clings to her mother-in-law. She clings to her, and, and Ruth is still, Naomi, excuse me, is still steadfast on this. Verse, verse 15, and she said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. Three times now, Naomi has pleaded, go. But Ruth does not go. And I think there's something really, really fascinating in this text for us as it relates to missions and to saying yes to the call of God to step into missions. And I think it's an issue we really struggle with in our present day culture. Notice something really important. Um, there's, I think, two insights here. There, there's the first one, first one is this. Remember the reason she gives as to why they should go back. She says, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. So it's clear that she really loves these two. It's clear she really cares for these two daughters-in-law she has. But then look what she says. She says in verse 15, back, she, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. And there, I think, church, lies the issue. There lies the issue. See, she has a great love for her daughters-in-law, but the problem is she is displaying that love incorrectly in what she desires for her daughters-in-law. Right? She is mixing up and, and wrongly prioritizing the lives and the well-being of her daughter-in-law. Here's what I'm going to say uh, this morning, is that when we love someone deeply, it's easy to prioritize their situational security over their eternal destiny. It is so easy, church, to say, no, I really want you to be happy. Remember, what's the goal? Go back to your family. It's safe there. Whatever, you know, you're not going to, I'm scared if you stay with me, everybody dies who's around me, I'm scared you're going to die. Go back to your family and to their gods. She is prioritizing comfort. She's prioritizing assumed security. She is prioritizing all of the easy things, quote unquote, and she's actually at the expense of the, the most important thing. And church, how often are we guilty with that with our loved ones? with our friends, with our coworkers, It is so easy to prioritize for others their comfort, their safety, and their well-being, quote-unquote, over their eternal destiny and their eternal security that only comes through faith in Christ. You see, here's the thing, church. We believe some pretty, some pretty significant and severe things. If we profess to be Christians, what, what we're saying, and I hope we understand this, and maybe this is a recap for us, What we're saying through our faith is that we believe something called sin exists in the world. We believe that behind sin is Satan, the enemy. We believe that sin is brokenness, that sin is the cause of death, of of disease, of tears, of all things that are wrong in the world. And what we also believe is that there is a holy and perfect God, a God that created all things, a God who him himself is the essence, the very nature of holiness, which is perfection, which is that which is set apart. That's what holiness means, to be set apart. And so on one side, we have the holy, perfect God. On the other side, we have sin. 
And what we also believe, church, is that sin cannot be in the presence of a holy, perfect God. And the issue comes when we realize all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You see, every single one of us is guilty. We're all stained. We've all messed up. We all need to repent. And it's an uncomfortable thing to do, but we all need to do it. And so the issue lies if we're in sin and sin cannot be in the presence of the holy God, how do we get there? And the Bible is really clear is that no one comes to the Father except through him, through Jesus. There is only one way to the holy, perfect God. It is God the Son because God the Son is perfectly righteous. God the Son never sinned. God the Son obeyed the Father perfectly. And so, church, what we believe is that through faith in God the Son, the perfect Son of God, what we believe is that the perfect Son of God took upon God the Father's wrath upon himself against sin said, no, all of their sin, all of their mess, I'm going to put it on you. I'm going to punish you, Jesus, for their sin. And so when we have faith, what we're saying is, my sin is on Jesus. And Jesus' righteousness is on me. And so therefore, because Jesus' righteousness is on me, I can get to the Father. See that? It's the gospel. We don't deserve it. We didn't earn it. Jesus did. And he gives it to us freely through faith. It's stunning. No matter how far away from God we are, through faith, through repentance, we can get to the holy and perfect God. Now, herein lies the issue. If someone does not believe in the holy, perfect Jesus and does not say, Jesus, I need you to take for me the penalty for my sin, they cannot get to the holy, perfect God. And that's the harsh reality of what it is we cling to. And so what that means is that if anyone is left in their sin, when this life comes to an end, and it will, if they are not found in the righteousness of Christ, they will be separated from God forever. And we don't like to talk about that because it's uncomfortable. We don't like to address that because it's hard, but the reality of the scriptures are the world is condemned. Jesus didn't come into the world to condemn the world, but the world is already condemned. So when we, church, prioritize our friend's ease, when we are shying away from saying, look, this is the reality of, of, of the situation, are we really loving? Or are we cowering? When we prioritize their situational security over their eternal destiny, is that true love? There's a famous magician duo, Penn and Teller. Maybe you've heard, heard this story. Penn Gillette is a, he's the bigger one of the two. I was going to get a picture, but then I forgot, so sorry about that. Look him up later. Anyway, Penn, he is a, a, a pretty devout atheist, okay? And, and there's a story um, about a time this, this man came up to him after a show and tried to share the gospel uh, with him. And so uh, he, he, says, he says this in response. He says, to someone who's trying to share the gospel. He says, I don't respect, uh, let me set that up again, for someone who who's a Christian who believes all the things I just talked about who doesn't share the gospel. This is what he says of that person. He says, I don't respect that at all. If you believe that there's a heaven and a hell, and people could be going to hell or not, uh, or not getting eternal life or whatever, and you think that it's really not worth telling them this because it would make things socially awkward, how much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize or evangelize? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe that everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? 
If I believe beyond a shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe it and that truck was bearing down on you, there's a certain point where I tackle you. That's coming from an atheist. And so if we believe all of the things that we say we believe, perhaps the most loving thing, not perhaps, the most loving thing that we can possibly do is to share with our loved ones, this is the reality of the situation. A truck is coming towards you. It's called death. And if that truck hits you before you believe in Jesus, you're separated forever. There are no redos. There's no second chance in heaven. The chasm is set. It's it. But man, we are like Naomi. Go back to your people. You don't, you don't really have to. You're a good person. Being a good person is not the same as the gospel. There's no righteousness in us alone. We can do a lot of good works, but if we don't have faith in the ultimate one, Jesus, our good works are nothing. We can't work our way to heaven. Heaven had to come to us to rescue us in the person of Jesus. And so, church, your friends, your family, are you prioritizing their comfort? Are you prioritizing situational security, relational security, relational ease? I'm, I'm guilty of this. And this week, this has been very, very convicting to me, personally. Now, I think that's point one, right? I think that's, that's, reason, uh, that's point one we see from this story, and it comes again from Naomi really desiring, hey, hey, go back. But there's, there's a second point here that, that I think is, is really, really important. Um, notice at the beginning of the, of the, of the verses, um, we saw in verse 6, she's working in the fields, Naomi, and she's with, the text would seem to indicate, uh, with her daughters-in-law. They're working in the fields, and then when she hears the famine in Israel is over, then she gets up and she says, all right, we're, you know, she's trying to go back to Bethlehem. They follow her. It's at that point when they begin to follow her that she goes back and says, no, don't come. And as I was looking at that, I was like, that's sort of funny. If she really wanted them to be back with her family, why didn't she tell them that before? Right? It seems the text would indicate that, that the sons have been dead for a little while. So if she really wanted them to go back to their families and be secure and safe, why didn't in the moment they died, she said, look, just go. It'd be better if you, if you left. But no, she, she doesn't tell them to leave until she's going back to, to Bethlehem, which to me smells like something a little bit funny. Because think about this. Uh, in Deuteronomy chapter 23, you can look into it. Um, God very clearly says, look, have, have no foreign marriages. Specifically, he calls out, do not marry a Moab, Moabite woman. And in our day and age context, that's like, well, that sounds horrible. Um, but look into the context of Deuteronomy 23. It'll make sense. We've got to remember God is God, okay? And there's a reason for this. See, Moab had a horrible history. I said some of that before. And God forbids, like, no, don't marry a Moabite woman. And so now, what has Naomi done? One, she's moved to the land she wasn't supposed to move to. And she allowed her two sons to marry forbidden women. And so now when she wants to go back to her people, suddenly she's going to be bringing in tow two forbidden women and have to show up in town and explain where she sinned. Isn't she? Because allowing her sons to marry those women, women was actually sin. It doesn't appear as though, as though they converted to Judaism. It doesn't appear as though they, they had faith in Yahweh. Not yet. And so church, here, here's the point as it relates to mission. Sin Sin leads to shame. Shame leads to hiding. Hiding leads to silence. 
She, she wanted to do everything. I think. I think it's in the, in the text. I think it's pretty clear. She wanted to do everything she could to, to say, you know what, it's going to be a lot easier if I roll into Bethlehem and say it was a tragedy, everybody died, but here I am. Instead of rolling into Bethlehem and saying, okay, here's my sin following me. And I think as it relates to sharing the gospel, to, to taking with us the Great Commission wherever it is we go, it's really easy to allow our past sin to work shame in us, to work silence through us. It is really easy to say, I, I've made a mess of this thing. Who am I to go and tell somebody how to live their life? And we're not telling somebody how to live their life. We're telling them about Jesus. Jesus will tell them how to live their lives, to be clear. Who, who am I to go and share this thing? And I have done all of this. And, and what I don't want to do is, is to go to this person that I care about and have to divulge my mess to them. But here's the thing, church. I think repentance is actually one of our most powerful tools in the process of evangelism. Right? When it comes to evangelism, repentance is one of those most powerful tools because when we repent, we are weak and he is strong. Right, so my question is, church, how has Jesus changed you? How might Jesus use your story to change another person? Do you know how Jesus has changed you? Have you had a moment where you've been crushed by your own sin and allowed Jesus to see you in your sin and you've repented and said, I'm sorry, and repentance is so uncomfortable? But the beautiful thing is, church, Jesus is never going to reject us. He's never going to. I love what First John says uh, if I can find it, um, here we go. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There's a promise from God. And so we can with confidence go to God and say, here I am in my mess and church. Because we know God will never reject us, we can have confidence going to the, to the other person and repenting, especially if they're a Christian, because they should understand what they've been forgiven of in the same way that we should be forgiving to others when they repent to us. But, but I think so often we downplay how we've been transformed to people because we're scared they're going to judge us. But who cares? God doesn't. God doesn't judge us. He doesn't condemn us when, when we're in Christ. And so I want to challenge us, church. How, how might your story, how might your weakness, how might your brokenness lead to someone else seeing the transform, transformative power of Jesus at work in their lives, and what that could be. Now, eventually the text goes on. Uh, the text goes on, and, and there's a lot of really, really powerful things that happen. Um, what we see is that uh, Naomi, she says this in verse 16, uh, after, after, excuse me, Ruth, I keep getting those two mixed up, I'm sorry. Um, after Naomi has said to her daughters-in-law twice now, no, don't, uh, Ruth says this. She says, for where you go, uh, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. And so Ruth in this moment has this clear profession of faith to say, no, I'm, I'm rejecting my past. I'm, I'm going to move away from my family. I'm going to move away from likely relative comfort. I'm going to move away from everything that's familiar, and I'm going to follow you, Naomi. I'm going to make your God my God. Wherever you go, I go. I'm going to go with you because I'm professing my faith in the God of Israel. 
And we all, I think, have to get to that point to say, no, whatever is in my past, whatever is there, whatever is, is appealing about my past, I need to say no to that, and I want to go be where God is. I want to go be a part of the work that God is doing. I want to be wherever Jesus is moving, wherever Jesus is working, wherever God's activity is, I want to be a part of that activity. I want to be a part of that work. And so from there, both Ruth and Naomi, they show up in Bethlehem. They show up at the time of the barley harvest. And again, the famine is over in Israel. And Ruth begins to go and glean uh, from the field of a particular individual. Gleaning, there was this law in Israel, which is really great. Uh, God commanded to sort of leave the edges of the fields for foreigners and for people in need to take food if they needed it, right? You can harvest the center, you can harvest that stuff, but, but leave the edges for those who are in need. And so Ruth went and she, they were in need, and so she would take whatever was left over. And eventually she is connected to a man named Boaz. And Boaz happens to be the family member of Naomi. And so there's a lot of legal history here and how all of this works out, and I don't have time to get into it, but essentially Boaz is something called a kinsman's redeemer. Kinsman redeemer. What that means is that because Boaz is part of the family and the men of the family have died, Boaz can essentially marry, marry Ruth and redeem the property, redeem the family, and essentially have security and peace. And it is a picture of the gospel for us. See, because, again, Ruth was a forbidden woman. Ruth had no business being where she was, and yet she had faith in the one true God. Boaz revealed grace and mercy to her, and it led to the salvation, in a sense, of their family, and it's the same for us. We have no business being in the family of God because we're all here in sin. And yet, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so now, through Christ's death, we get to be in the family of God. We didn't earn it, we didn't deserve it, but because of grace, that's where we get to be. And so what we then see is they are married. Naomi, her faith sort of blossoms. She goes from this really almost rejecting God to this real true faith in God. What we also see as the text goes on is Boaz and Ruth, they have a child. And that child ends up being the father of Jesse, and Jesse ends up being the father of King David. And what that means is that Ruth, a Moabite forbidden woman, is the grandmother of King David. And what that means is that Ruth, the Moabite forbidden woman, is in the ancestry of Jesus the King. It's amazing. It's the last thing I want us to see, church. Never underestimate what God can do with a single person. Never underestimate what God can do with a single person. Never underestimate what God can do through obedience from you. Never underestimate what God can do through repentance in you. Never underestimate what God might do if you share the gospel with a family member, a coworker, or a friend. God is in the business of saving people. And God, for whatever reason, made us plan A. It seems like a bad strategy. But the wonderful part of God's plan A strategy is it uses a bunch of broken, weak, flawed people like us. And therefore, the glory is very clearly attributed. <laughs> the glory doesn't go toward us when people are saved. The glory doesn't go toward us when people start repenting. The glory doesn't go toward us when God starts to move in a community. The glory doesn't go toward us when 450 people are saved. The glory doesn't go toward us when 
4,500 people are reached with the gospel. All glory goes to God because none of us deserve to be there in the first place. None of us. And so I might ask you this morning, if you are here and you don't yet have this this thing that I'm talking about, which is a relationship with Jesus, and you would find yourself over here, this section of of the stage apparently I've I've referred to as sin. If you're over here and you want to be over there, which is apparently the section of the stage I've, I've deemed as the presence of God, what you need to do this morning is find yourself here, which is the presence of Jesus. What you need to do is to repent from all of this junk, all of this brokenness, all of this mess, and say, Jesus, I believe in you and I need you. And Jesus will not reject you, but he calls you to a different life. He calls you to reject your past life and step into the new life that he will give you. He's not going to reject you, but he does want you to reject what's behind you. And he wants you to step in faith, say, God, how can you use me? And maybe the people that were with you behind you are the very people he'll point you toward, I don't know. Maybe the very very people who are in your family, that's who he's going to point you toward. But church, we never underestimate what God can do with a single person. If God can take Ruth and he can from her lead to Jesus, what can he do with 125 people saying yes? What can he do? And I'm excited to see what he can do because I believe we're going to say yes to whatever it is God is asking us to do because that yes rests in the faithfulness of God not in our own abilities. Would we pray together this morning? Father, I'm really, really grateful for this series. I'm really grateful for this time to to focus our hearts on where you're moving, uh, to to take time to think through, God, what are you doing? Where are you doing it? How can we be a part of it? God, I'm really thankful for, for your word and stories like Ruth, where we see that you can do almost just seemingly unimaginable things through single individual people. And so, Father, this morning, anyone here, if you're here and, and you're thinking, I, I, don't yet, I don't yet really fully trust Jesus, I don't yet really know who Jesus is, I want to I ask you to, to take that step this morning. And the way that you take that step is, is what I've said many times already through acknowledging that you're a sinner. It's through acknowledging that you've made mistakes. It's through acknowledging that you've, you've really gone your own way. You've rebelled. And as you sit in sort of the sorrow of rebellion and the sorrow of brokenness and the sorrow of pain and the sorrow of lostness, I want to point you toward the everlasting joy, the everlasting peace, the everlasting comfort of Christ. He sees you, but he does not reject you. He knows you. He desires you. And to come to him, what you do is say, Jesus, I believe that you can save me. I believe that you paid for my sins. I believe in you, Jesus. And Jesus, I want to give you my life. I want to lay down my life for you and say, do with it what you will. Here is my yes, Jesus. Take it. If that's you this morning, I want to welcome you into the family of God. I want to welcome you in 
to what God can do through you. I want to welcome you into the most important work that exists, the seeking and the saving of the lost through Jesus. Welcome to the family of God. And for the rest of us, I pray that we would have hearts that that rightly prioritize the mission of the gospel to seek and to save the lost, that we wouldn't rightly prioritize comfortable relationships, but we would rightly prioritize evangelism and in saying, you need this. God, would you align in our hearts what love truly looks like? We need you to do that by the power of your spirit. We ask you to do that. In the mighty, wonderful name of Jesus, amen.